I draw your attention to this passage of Scripture I read to you, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, and those very familiar words in verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11 and verse 28. They summarize one of the most vital and practical themes in Scripture, the theme of coming to Christ. And tonight we're going to ask what the Bible means by these words that are very terribly plain and and simple. If men are weary and burdened because of their guilt, their memories, their regrets, then the one essential response that God requires of them is that they come to his Son, Jesus Christ. You think, ah, well, that is too simple. But we are simple people. God's word is not uh, directed at theologians or philosophers or intellectual high flyers or any elite, any religious extremists. It's for all kinds of people. It's for illiterates. It's for people with learning difficulties. It's for peasants and slaves and every kind of person. And this is the one great word that God brings again and again to all men. You must come to my son and then life will begin. So these are promises that the Lord Jesus makes in his word about those who come to him. He that comes to Jesus will never hunger. He that comes to Jesus will in no wise be cast out. If you come to me, you will have rest. No man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him, and he will raise him up in the last day. Here are clear promises from the Lord Christ, who when he spoke, The winds and waves obeyed him, who healed the sick and raised the dead. Jesus, who said, I am the truth. He said, we wouldn't be cast out if we came to him. That We wouldn't hunger if we came to him. We'd find rest. We'd be raised up in the last day. There are also terrible warnings in scripture about those who fail to come to Christ. In John 5.40 the Lord Jesus said you will not come to me that you might have life. He was addressing the questioning unbelieving folk of his generation and he was saying to them that they forfeited eternal life by their refusal to come to him. So when the Lord Jesus says he won't cast out anyone who comes to him, he is inferring that he will cast out those who refuse to come to him. If he promises rest to those who come to him, he is saying there's no rest for those who will not come to him. If he says to us, If you come to me, you'll never be hungry again. He is saying then that those who will not come to Christ will never find their hunger satisfied 
in this world. So you see how tremendously important this subject is for all of you. This isn't just a, a Bible study. This is a matter of being given the rest of Christ or not having that blessed rest. It's a matter of being satisfied with him or being dissatisfied with everything. This is a matter of being received into the love of of Christ or being cast away from him. This is not a matter of uh, scoring some theological or ecclesiastical points or belittling novice Christians. It's not a matter of titillating our intellects. It's a matter of life and death, of rest or restlessness, heaven or hell, being with him forever or being cast away from him. It's very crucial. Have we come to Jesus Christ. Well, to whom am I speaking? Well, I'm speaking to those in an age where religious decisions are very common. There are rituals that you undergo and courses that you take and classes that are taught and phrases that are used and hands that are laid on men and women and words are spoken to them. Decisions are made. Assurances given to people that all is well from now on between you and God. But what if you have been deceived over a decision as important as this? Our Lord warns us in the Sermon on the Mount about false prophets. He tells us these people exist and that we are not to be gullible people that believe everybody with a shining face and deep, sincere eyes. Jesus speaks about wolves who come in sheep's clothing and about devils who come as angels of light. So if you discover that something is counterfeit, then you will be glad that you were warned about that and that there was something genuine that would last forever and ever. I want to show you my understanding of the true way of coming to Christ. My fear is that uh, you've not come to Christ on the terms and in the way that the Bible describes as a true coming to him. And so I'll rock you. I'll shake the foundations on which you are living your life if those foundations have not been laid by God from his word. That's the first. And then secondly, there are others of you who, during the past months, have been awakened to some spiritual concern that the materialism that you see in the world around you, that you thought as being the overriding purpose of life, gaining stuff, You are more cynical than that than ever before in your life. Um, Indifference to the Christian religion and self-centeredness and pleasure-loving. You're no longer like that, and I'm so glad to know of that. You're not unconcerned about God any longer and about the fact that you are soul, that you are spirit as as well as uh, a body, 
A friend of mine has talked to a friend has talked to you. A, a Christian friend. A book has been given to you to to read. Your conscience has been awakened. You you've started to go to some meetings at the university. You have a, a longing to know what is right about so great a decision as that. You've become awakened by the Spirit of God to the reality of spiritual issues, and it's a crucial time in your life. And the world is showing a good-natured tolerance to you. It thinks you're going through a phase then, like many people do go through. You're not the first young person to get interested in religion. And he, your family say, well, that's, that's nice, as long as you don't get extreme. And that is a danger of being extreme in, in things that are peripheral or unimportant or false. I said to you, the, well, the jury is still out about religion. And so you are uh, you're meeting some fiery darts, and you are a little troubled now about uh, your new interest in Christian things and... I want to help you by explaining to you something as fundamental as what is it to come to Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, there are those of you who have truly come to Christ and uh, being assured again that the steps you've taken and the interest you show and the new affections in your heart and the new convictions that you bear are really genuine. They are from God. And so I hope that before the day is out, you We'll go to God again and thank him for his grace in helping you and bless him for the people that have been such a help to you in your life. And uh, it'll be a word of instruction and assurance to help you. So those are the different people I'm aiming my words at. So let me um, approach this subject in this way by asking first what coming to Christ is not. I want to clear away some rubble. Um, When Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, he was not talking about a physical act. There are multitudes of uh, professing Christians who who equate coming to Christ. They, They trace it back to some physical action that they went through. You know, there's a an evangelist, and he preaches, and he longs for people to come to Christ. And I I wait with him in expectation, and I love to hear his entreaties and his pleadings, that he forgets about his notes, and he looks at people, and he urges and exhorts them now to to come and and look to Jesus Christ and, and trust in him, and I admire all that. But when he uses um, other tricks when lights are dimmed and the choir will sing and sing over and over again. When he'll charge them with cowardice if they don't do what he asks them to do. When he urges them to get out of their seats and come to the front and to to be brave about it and stand up and walk down the aisle and come to the front And when he equates that 
with the spiritual action of your heart and soul coming and expressing its yearning and longing to have God as your God forever and ever. And when he says that everyone who's come to the front has now become a real Christian, then I have my apprehensions about such activities. But you know how it's worked out in certain circles that they count and they can say 20 people came, 100 people came, 1,000 people came because they judge it by the physical response of people raising a hand or coming to the front or kneeling down to the message. Now, of course people are converted in any meeting where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. God's desires everyone to come and hear and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. But no one was ever converted by moving from point A to point B. No one's heart was ever changed by going through a physical response by raising a hand or remaining seated while the congregation stood. Jesus says this in John 6, 44. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. If coming to Christ is some sort of physical action and I just need the courage to get out of my seat and walk to the football pitch or to the front of the, of the big meeting. I don't need the Holy Spirit to do that. I just need guts to do it. I need to feel, well, somebody ought to take a stand. Something needs to be done in our decade. There is no need of an inward spiritual life-giving, motivating power from God for anyone to do that. You just want to take your stand. But Jesus said, no one, no one, not you, not me, not anyone, no one can come to me except the Father who sent me, draw him, compel him to come to me. And should there be anyone here who is convinced that they're a Christian because uh, they pass through some outward physical action, I hope you'll be awakened to the possibility that you might be wrong. That God will use his word as a purging influence that you'll never think, let alone speak, in terms of equating a physical action with the inward, spiritual, divine reality of your heart and life being drawn out and centered from now on on Jesus Christ. Secondly, when Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest, he was not talking about uh, a merely mental act. And again, many are deceived at this point. There are classes that introduce the Christian religion. And men in these classes, women in these classes, are told that God is their maker and that he is the creator and his son is Jesus Christ and he lived a sinless life and he died 
an atoning death, and he rose the third day, and he is seated at the right hand of God, and forgiveness of sins is found in him. These propositions are laid out one by one, and there are books and answers to be written in them. Now the class is finally asked, do you believe these things? Do you believe that these things are true? And they think for a moment, and they say, yeah. And then they are told, this means you are Christians. You understand two things have occurred. They've been told that the essence of coming to Jesus Christ is assenting to certain facts about him. That he's the son of God, that he's the conqueror of death, that he rose the third day and so on, and they nod their heads to that systematic presentation of Christianity. Ah, they are told, then you have come to Christ. And then they are told personally and solemnly by the person who is leading the course, who seems to know so much, and is a sweet person, and an earnest Christian, and knows so much more about Christianity than they do, All is well now between you and God. And again, if that is true, then John 6 and verse 44 better be tipexed over in our Bibles. No man can come to me except the Father who has sent me. Draw him. Who needs the Holy Spirit to uh, ascend to the historical facts of the Bible? We people in the British Isles know the date 1066. And we know that William the Conqueror came across uh, the English Channel and then near Hastings there was a battle and uh, William defeated Harold. There was an arrow in his eye, the king died and the uh, French army came in and uh, the whole history of Britain changed. You don't need the work of the Holy Spirit to say, yes, I believe in 1066 and the battle of Hastings. Um, And so you don't need the work of the Holy Spirit to say there was a man born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and uh, he lived a wonderful life and he was a teacher and uh, he died on the cross uh, to make atonement and he rose from the dead on the third day and he's in heaven and your mind moves and say, yeah, these things, these things took place. That's a cerebral activity. That is not saving faith. You are believing the system of Christian teaching. That is historical faith. You know how James says devils believe about Jesus? They believe in the Trinity. They believe that he is God and man in in one person, that he is the judge and the savior of the world. Uh, The devils believe that. Uh, Milton in Paradise Lost uh, visits a discussion in uh, hell of uh, the demons, and they're discussing together divine determinism and things like that, I suppose, very accurately. And all the churches of the world are attended by people who have some contact with the Bible, 
have gone through some inquiry classes and courses and have exercised some mental activity towards Christianity, agreeing to what they hear is a purely intellectual act. doesn't mean that they have come to Jesus Christ. Thirdly, when Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest, he wasn't talking about some mystical experience that is ungrounded in the truth. Because you know that everyone who's gone to church today, from um, John O'Groats to Land's End, from Norfolk to Pembrokeshire, all over the British Isles and uh, all over the world, they have a vague idea, a vague belief in a Christ about whom they've heard something vague, and in a vague kind of way they've made a vague commitment to this vaguely known person. Lots of people are like that. That's not coming to Christ. Our Lord Jesus once spoke to some people and he said to them, you don't have God's word abiding in you. God's word abiding, remaining, sustaining, transforming you. How could he say that? Well, he said, he told them, Because the one whom God had sent into the world, he was talking about himself, they were rejecting. They were saying nice things about him and they went along to hear him speak. And they said, he's a remarkable man and he speaks with authority and he does the most incredible things. That's what they said. So what were these people to do? Well, he said this to them. Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. That's what he said to them. The scriptures, um, the 39 books of the Old Testament, and we can add the 27 books of the New Testament, they are full of Jesus Christ. And eternal life is all linked with your knowledge of him, him the Christ you find in the Bible. A stranger to Scripture, then, is a stranger to eternal life. Who is Jesus? What kind of nature does he have? What's he done? Why did he do it? What are the implications of that for us? What must I do to be saved? And the Scriptures, the Word of God, tells me. Eternal life is all bound up in them. And a man who is a stranger to the Scriptures is a stranger to eternal life because only in this book, this saving book that God gives and places before a a preacher that he should explain and proclaim to all who will hear him, only here you find the Jesus who gives eternal life. So, um, you mustn't ignore the scriptures Here, Jesus is not some vague and undefined Christ. He's not one who changes from century to century, from one individual to another individual, from one culture to another. He, He is the unchangeable Christ of the Bible. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. There's no white Christ or black Christ. There's no European Christ or African Christ. There's no feminist Christ or socialist Christ. There's just one, just one, 
one Lord Jesus, the Jesus of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Paul and, and Peter and James and nobody else. Nobody else. You find the same principles in, uh, in Paul's letter to young Timothy where he charges him to preach the word. That's what he must do all the time. He must explain the word of God to them because scripture is the breath of God. God breathed and it's profitable in his teaching. It rebukes us when we do what's wrong and it instructs us and leads us into righteousness and it strengthens us for every kind of good work that we can possibly do. And that's the way we are drawn to Christ. That's the way we are taught about him. By the words of the Bible. And there are people, you know they don't have the smallest understanding of who Jesus is. From one year's beginning to its end, they never pull a Bible down and and read for themselves the life of of Christ, his perfection, his courage, his life-enhancing words and ministry. They have a woozy religion with a vague idea or ideal that they call Jesus. Have they come to him? And according to Jesus, coming to him is a response to learning about him from men who wrote the scriptures. So, coming to Christ is not some mystical experience that is unfounded in the truth. So, if you say to me, well, I think of Jesus like this, and you give me a a portrait of your idea of what he is, I have to say, but, but does the Bible present Jesus in this particular way? The the Gospels, four facets, four spotlights on the Lord Christ. Four of them, who Jesus was and how he was born. No one was born like him. No one lived like him. No one died like him. No one rose from the dead like him. No one's coming again like Jesus Christ. Here he is. And uh, it's as we come to this Jesus, we find rest. And an easy yoke and a light burden. So, coming to Christ is not any of those three things. All right? It's not a, a, a physical act and it's not uh, some uh, vague uh, mental act uh, and it's not uh, a mystical private action. So, well, um, it, it's too private for me to tell you. No, we've got to give a reason for people asking us why we have hope because of Jesus Christ. What do you mean? We've got to say it. And we need to say what the Bible says. All right, let me go on then to my last point. Uh, What coming to Christ does mean. Coming to Christ is simply another way of saying believing in Christ. All right, John 6 you find the two terms are used there quite interchangeably. That to believe in Christ is to come to Christ. To come to Christ is to believe in him. Verse 35 in John 6, Jesus says, 
I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. And he says in verse 37 about the man who comes to him that he won't be cast out. He says in verse 40, those who believe in him will be raised up. And so the two terms are used quite interchangeably in, on the lips of Jesus himself. So what is involved in this believing into Jesus Christ, this coming to Jesus Christ? You want to know, don't you? Even if you're going to disagree with what I say, you still want to know what I think coming to Christ is. The first thing that coming to Christ always involves is a recognition of personal spiritual need that only Jesus Christ can meet. Our text says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, all you who are burdened and are heavy laden, you have a, a conscious need, a spiritual need, a vague unease, uh, an unhappy awareness that your life isn't measuring up. It's not finding fulfillment in the non-Christian things you've spent so much of your life upon. And you've tried immersing yourselves in the pleasures of the world, but that's just increased the weight of guilt. John Bunyan was a Puritan who wrote the famous Pilgrim's Progress. And John Bunyan begins that story by telling us of a man who is living in a city called the City of Destruction. And this man then, he's conscious that he's carrying a great burden there on his back, like a haversack, and it's full of bricks and, and steel, and oh, it's such a burden. And he's, he's cracking under the strain of carrying this burden. The burden is the burden of his failure, his guilt, his shame. There was a man Jesus spoke about who was a, a tax collector who served the Roman Empire and overcharged people taxes and just lined his pocket with them and felt the burden of stealing from these people. And One day he was in the temple overwhelmed with guilt and he couldn't look up. He looked down to the ground and he beat his breast and he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. God takes his law and he says, well, now you, you want to please me. Do you know what that means? It means you have no other gods but me. It means that you don't make any idol and worship and serve that idol. It means uh, you don't take my name in vain and lace your speech and uh, swear that you are always doing the right thing and lying. There's a day a week when you say, I'm not living for my studies. I'm not living to make money for my business. I keep a day for God. You honor your mother. You honor your father. There's no violence. There's no sexual sin. Purity before marriage, faithfulness within it. 
You don't lie. You don't steal. You don't covet what your friends have. You are content with what God has given you. That's the law of God. He sums it up like this. You love God wholeheartedly. And you love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what God says in, in his word. Ten words, and the Holy Spirit uses that. I'm not a very good Christian. That's, that's the beginning, to recognize that. To go on and say, um, I'm a sinner. If that's the standard by which I'm going to be judged in all the world, I, I'm, I'm going to fail at that judgment. And God hates sin. All that's tawdry and cruel and mean and deceitful and hurtful. and God doesn't, isn't indifferent. It matters to God because you were made in God's image. And you were made in, in God's likeness. God is angry with a torturer. With what's going on in ISIS or what's going on in Aberystwyth. Abuse. And a drug pusher and a killer, and a rapist. He's angry every single day with it. And so, John Bunyan's figure, and King David, and Saul of Tarsus, and the publican, the tax gatherer in the temple, they were all conscious of their guilt and their shame. They were laboring. They were heavy laden. Their shoulders were bent, and their Shoes seemed like divers' boots. And they knew that they were going to give an account to God for how they lived this life in this world and didn't want to think about it, didn't want to think about death, didn't want to think about eternity. Coming to Christ is coming from a consciousness of a life of, of guilt and failure. And shame. The Jews of Jesus' day, they didn't have that. They wouldn't come to him. He was presented in their scriptures as a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. Uh, They saw him. He had 12 men that scrutinized him day by day, night by night. They shared bedrooms and meals and walked and saw him under extreme provocation. They they killed him by torturing him to death. And they heard him pray for the people who were torturing him. That's the sort of life they were living. And he was saying, I don't live like that. I'm a failure. I'm a sinner compared to him. But when Jesus said to them that they were sinners, when he said, whosoever commits sin is a slave of sin, they were insulted. We're not slaves. We're free men. That's what we are. And here is the only totally free man that this world has ever seen. He was a contented man in everything that he had. He didn't itch for stuff, for relationships, for things that are illicit. He was the most humble and sweet 
and pure and lovely man. And they didn't want him. They weren't conscious that their wills were not free, but were in bondage to sin. And so they didn't feel they needed to be liberated by anyone. And I'm saying to you, you've never come to Christ unless you felt something of that. Some consciousness, some awareness of your guilt and of your failure. Of being certain that you can't get by now without help right outside yourself. That you're not looking inwardly any longer for the hero that's in your heart. But you're looking for uh, help from heaven, help from God. That it's a real thing that you can see your friends experience and enjoy day by day. And you're asking then, how can I get rid of this burden? To whom can I go? So I'm asking you, has the Holy Spirit come and has he convicted you of your sin? Has he shown you the the gap there is between how you live and how someone who loves God with all his heart and loves his neighbors himself, how, how they live? I'm not saying do you know these verses, but experientially in your life, have you, have you felt the burden of them? The Lord Jesus, to our encouragement, said he didn't come into the world and look for the righteous people in Aberystwyth, the righteous students, the goody-goodies, and chose them. But he came for people who knew they were sinners. That's why I came into the world and to call sinners to repentance for their sin. He's in the business of helping those that are in need. Are you such a person who knows you need Jesus Christ to get by in your life, to take away the burden of sin that you were bearing, of guilt for the past? Second thing, that coming to Christ always involves is being aware that Jesus Christ is perfectly suited to meet that need that you have. No one comes who doesn't see that they have a need and no one comes to him who isn't shown from the Bible and by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ can meet that need. If you were going to a doctor and you had bad pain and he said, ah, take an aspirin and uh, you'll be okay in a day or two. You'd be so perplexed. You'd say, I want a second opinion. Because you knew that this was a different pain from the pains that uh, uh, aspirins have helped in in the past. Um, This kind and loving, this grand physician that is Jesus Christ tells us what's wrong and then he tells us that we needn't fear because we have done wrong because he has come to lift our burdens to deal with the problem of our guilt and shame that's why he came into the world 
We sing, I know a fount, a fountain. I know a fount where sin is washed away. I know a place where night is turned to day. Burdens are lifted, blind eyes made to see. There's a wonder-working power in the blood of Calvary. That's what we sing. Now, uh, we can be sent to all sorts of places and people at this time. And we can uh, immerse ourselves in tranquilizers and uh, in the pub and in non-stop entertainment. We can just switch on TV and go from channel to channel. We can try and start another relationship with another person or so, uh, some other man, some other woman can help us to deal with who we are. And what's wrong with us? But here's this, this extraordinary person who's been on this world. Gravity held him down like it's holding all of us down now. He had a heart like we have the pumps blurred around him. He had eyes to see and look at this great and glorious world. And he had a scriptures to read. And he had a heavenly father that helped him and gave him such strength and peace. And he came into the world to deal with our single greatest problem of the gulf there is between ourselves and God, the alienation a holy God has towards the miserable ways that we have treated other people. And he's come to bring, bridge that that gulf and he's come to help us to lift that burden that's why Christ came into the world behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world John the Baptist cried to his uh, his disciples when he saw Jesus Christ coming he died as one who makes atonement and sacrifice he loved me and gave himself for me The Holy God, satisfied with what his son, Jesus Christ, has done. And as he wasn't just a man like we are men and women, but he was also God. His life and his death has all the properties of God. Eternal and omniscient and infinite and effectual and omnicompetent in all That he does. He's perfectly suited. He is perfectly competent to meet your needs. He says, come unto me. Come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. He can deal with every one of you. If everybody in Abarasa, the 10,000 students came this night to Jesus Christ, he could cope. He could handle your, your guilt and shame. He could lift the burdens of them all, the angst of so many men and the fears of so many women and the bewilderment and perplexity of so many teenagers. He can deal with it. And we know that because of his resurrection on the third day. Because he rose again from the dead. Because he was seen and ate and drank with his disciples for 40 days and he changed these men in from being cowards to men who asserted these things with an eloquence and a beauty of life that just transformed the world in which 
they lived. That was through the power of his resurrection. He's perfect to be your teacher. He'll tell you what to live for, what to spend your life and your energy doing. He can tell you about the sort of man you should marry, the sort of woman you should marry, how to be the parents you ought to be, what church you should visit, what things you should believe, what is death, what lies beyond it. Jesus Christ can teach you these things. You need this teacher, this great high priest in heaven now. We have a high priest. And this high priest, he he prays for us and he represents us. He prays for these students in Aberystwyth. He's asking his father to help them in their homesickness and in their feeling of inadequacy and everyone else seems to have it made and they're struggling and the Lord, he prays for us that we'll be helped and we'll be kept and he's our protector he's watched over us all the days of our lives he's worked everything together for our good we know and love him if it touches our lives in every way Jesus says it must work for their good. Otherwise he won't let it destroy us. This is the sort of king that we have if we have Jesus Christ. The last thing, the third thing that coming to Christ always involves is an act of resignation of myself to him. An act of entrustment of all I am to all he is. A movement of my heart as the Holy Spirit takes these truths about Jesus Christ and convinces me that they are true and leads me then to say, well, here I am, Lord. Um, I've got this whole life before me, a life that ends in death, and I want you to be with me And I want you to help me and strengthen me. I want forgiveness of my sins. And I want positively a life that honors and pleases you. And so you put yourself in the hands of Jesus Christ. Take myself and I will be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Uh, Hymn puts it like that. And then the lady who wrote the hymn says, Take my hands. Take my feet, take my eyes, take my intellect, take my voice. Take everything I am and help me from now on to live for Jesus Christ. That's coming to Christ. Have you come to Christ? Jesus said to them, come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is the restlessness of your life due to the fact that you haven't come to him? Has the Holy Spirit shown you the suitableness of Jesus Christ to be your savior? Has the Holy Spirit shown to you your guilt? That you're a sinner? Has the Holy Spirit shown to you Here's Jesus. Here he is in the beauty of his person, his arms outstretched to welcome you and save you and change you. Come, he says. Come, you needy. C-O-M-E. Come, you children. Come, you 
older children, come you middle-aged, come you elderly, C-O-M-E, come. As the Spirit of God takes his word and draws you to him. If Jesus was uh, sitting here or standing here at the front, I'd say, come to the front. But he's not here. He's, He's near you. In the word that I've been speaking to you, he's in your mind. In the feelings of uncertainty and guilt in your heart. That's the spirit of Christ that's caused that. In this, in this conviction that it's time for you to settle this matter. And from now on for you to be one with him. To put your hand in his hand. And to walk in step with him through life. That's why you have life. That's why God brought you here tonight. That's why he gave me this message to give to you. That you might know this, this Jesus as your very own Lord and Savior. Your teacher and your protector. And the Lamb of God who can take away your sin. Oh, how wonderful. So we don't have an altar here in the front and we don't sacrifice anything. Because Jesus Christ has paid the price for all our sin, past and present and future. And lives now to be our shepherd and our king forever. Let's pray to him. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son into this world and such a Son for the beauty of his life, for the one who says, come to me and and I will give you rest. Oh, what a privilege it is to come just as we are to such a God as you are. Thank you for helping us in your providence and picking us up when we've fallen and keeping us all the way until tonight. Oh, do bless us around the word of God. Holy Spirit, don't let this word now just turn to dust on the floor of this building. But oh, may it be life and spirit in the ears and minds and affections of everyone who is here. Please do it. Give honor to Christ in making new disciples of his. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.